0: Welcome to The Creationist, a podcast about people who create. I'm your host, Steve Waxman. I never really know where I might find my next guest. Case in point, Gordon Valiant. I met Gord out on the golf course, and during our round, I asked him what he did for a living before he retired. It turned out that he was a biomechanical engineer at Nike and helped develop the Nike shocks. The conversation was fascinating, and I thought that maybe you too might be interested in hearing about the science that goes into the development of athletic footwear. So, let's get right into it. In general, can you describe what it is that you did at Nike? Yeah, Uh, we
1: have a sport research lab, Mm -hmm. uh, really well staffed and uh, really well equipped. And so we would uh, study, research the biomechanics of human athletic movement. Uh, We would study the uh, physiology of exercise. We would study sort of the cognitive perceptions of uh, of footwear attributes and, uh, and performance. And then uh, ask research questions. The answers to which we would hope would provide some insight into innovative design of footwear or apparel. Mm-hmm. And then work uh, closely with designers and developers and marketing to uh, realize some innovation in product design. So we were the we were the scientists asking the research questions conducting the research experiments and then you're know, studying hypotheses and looking for answers. And then uh, to these research questions and then turning those answers into design insight.
0: All right. Well, that's look at the, uh, this, this is what this is about. The scientific approach of uh, creating footwear. Um, so does the process start with, with the, well, actually who does the pro? Okay. I'm, I'm,
1: I'd say it, mostly the process
0: starts with marketing.
1: Okay. Nike's really a marketing company. Nike's a really strong, strong marketing company. Right. There are a lot of things, but they're a very strong marketing company. So it starts with marketing. Uh, marketing will knows the marketplace. So they will look for a, an area where there's a product opportunity that maybe other competitors aren't addressing very well. Or look for an, an opportunity where um, uh, there might be opportunities for for selling a lot of a lot of product in a in a certain area, and so mar- marketing market it starts with marketing identifying uh, product need in the marketplace, and then how are we going to go about fulfilling that product opportunity?
0: So they would come to you with we want to design i don't know a, a new cross trainer or a, a new design. yes and and would that be we want to design a new cross trainer for a particular um gender or is it a, a, a for a for a market um so a market yeah, genre? Pretty
1: specific. it's it's pretty specific
0: you know we like i said maybe there's an
1: opportunity in the marketplace that no one is addressing very well or mm-hmm. maybe there's a, a, a place where we want to compete against a, a, a competitor that's doing really well in an area and that we think we can take some of that business. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but it's pretty it's specific. It would be a cross-training shoe or a running shoe or a basketball shoe or a tennis shoe. It could be a men's shoe or a women's shoe. Uh, it could be kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be uh, for a product in Europe or North America, or Asia, or South America. it's It could be quite specific.
0: It, no, so and,
1: the... and every season, there are there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of, of, of products being introduced. Uh, as scientists, we'd only work on a very, a, a very, very small percentage, uh, you know, a handful each season. And they would tend to be the most innovative or the most technical, the ones that need the most help from research.
0: Will the shoes start with, because because everything starts from the ground up, does the shoe start with you guys doing the research as to what goes into the base of the shoe? Or is it you guys start working at the same time as the designers start working on the, the upper part yeah, of the shoe? Yeah,
1: where. The designers aren't really waiting. They're they're jumping into it as well. Like like I said, that the 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 marketing has identified the product, has, has identified the opportunity and kind of the product. The designer starts working on the product. The scientist will hasn't knows the product and the opportunity. We're going to ask a research question. Now, if we knew if we knew this about the shoe, or if we knew this about the athlete or if we knew this about the performance how would that contribute to innovation and design i'll give you an i'll give you an example um some things that i worked on uh maybe uh we want to try to design a shoe that uh prevents the athlete from slipping so that it would uh, maximize, help to maximize their performance because they won't slip. But at the same time, we don't want it to have such excessive traction that the shoe is gonna kind of stick to the playing surface and uh, contribute to the athlete developing an injury. So this can happen in sports where there's a lot of translation, you know, like straight line movement, as well as rotation, so basketball is a sport like that. There's a there's a lot of pivoting and rotation, as well as a lot of straight line running, backwards running, sideways running, starting, stopping, cutting. Uh, uh, field sports like football and soccer are the same, and traction in those sports is really important. And so you want to provide some traction to uh, maximize their performance, but you don't want to provide such excessive traction that when the sh- when the foot wants to rotate and it can't rotate, and so therefore the knee joint might rotate or something, and, and result in an injury. Mm-hmm. And it's not uncommon for those kinds of things to occur. So we we would we would uh, so that might be a question that we would ask, and then we could study the biomechanics of the movement, and then we can identify well in order to stop suddenly or in order to to change direction rapidly the athlete needs this much traction and so we would inform the designer well let's try and design the outsole for to develop this amount of traction on the particular playing surface in a lot of cases it would be easy to design the outsole to maximize the traction and give even more traction you know by putting more rubber in the outsole or more natural rubber, which is stickier than synthetic rubber, or longer cleats in a soccer shoe, or more cleats in a soccer shoe. Mm -hmm. But instead, we would try to provide the exact right amount of traction without being maximum, so that we could provide both adequate translational traction uh, without inducing excessive rotational traction.
0: When you're doing your research, is it um, a different st- a different kind of research that you're doing for the elite athlete versus the people at home, the amateurs?
1: Uh, we would like, and and we have the opportunity to work with elite athletes all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, Nike sponsors so many athletes, and uh, over the years, we get opportunities to work with a lot of these elite athletes. And our goal is to, is to provide footwear for the elite athletes that's and and we definitely work with elite athletes to provide it for them a a lot of our research though is using recreational athletes Mm -hmm. because of the 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 numbers of of subjects we need and the, uh, the immediate availability that we might need but we're always looking to design for elite athletic performance you know there are distinct differences between males and females, uh, you know, so we would we would study that. for example, the morphology of the of the human foot is is different based on gender. So uh, the female foot is uh, narrower for a given foot length than the male foot, and so when you're designing footwear for the females, you don't just take the men's shoe and can give the woman a, a shorter shoe? You have, you have to change the shape of the shoe to accommodate the changing shape of the female foot. Uh, also, there are morphological differences in the foot across races. And, uh, you know, the Japanese foot, for example, is uh, maybe two and a half sizes wider in the forefoot than the Caucasian foot. So we don't just take our footwear, our product, and sell it in Japan, we have to modify the the shape of the that the internal volume of the of the shoe provides in order for it to fit the uh, Japanese foot, Chinese foot, Asian foot is different again. And and uh the uh the long foot, you know, the size 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 feet that are on the, the seven foot tall basketball players has a different shape than your foot and my foot. If, uh, you know, for, let's say a a seven foot man is two times, is twice as tall as a three and a half foot person, but is not two times wider than that person. And so uh, a foot that uh, is is maybe, um, uh, let's say a, a, a foot that's twice as long is not twice as wide. And so as the foot gets longer, it, it gets proportionately narrower. It gets wider as it gets longer, but its proportion is narrower. And so as we're making uh, shoes, this, the same basketball shoe uh, in a larger size, we have to actually accommodate the changing morphology of the foot that it's designed for. You know, we have very large databases of all this information and it's 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 proprietary information, of course, you know we you know we 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 study extensively around the world the morphology of the foot, you know, and we' we study the genders and the different races and and make appropriately fitting footwear where we're selling it
0: okay, yeah, I mean that's that's what I was curious about is like at 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 how high a level do you do your research and then bring it to the general public.
1: Uh, there are times when we have when we have opportunities to study at, at the absolute highest level. I mean, you know, we'll we'll work with track and field athletes who are world record holders and uh, gold medalists, mm-hmm. and we'll work with professional athletes that that play in the uh, NBA or uh, professional soccer players, top tennis players in the world. We we definitely have those opportunities.
0: When you when you are doing your re- research year to year, has the science changed so much that doing a soccer shoe, for instance, one year, the research, the science has changed enough that a, fo- a the year following, you have to start all over again because of findings and uh, science.
1: Uh, yeah, and so well, I wouldn't say the science changes so much. I mean we're studying physics so physics is a physical science physics is physics but but what changes and sometimes there's pretty rapid changes are materials materials have changed unbelievably during the course of my career and uh, uh, manufacturing capabilities are changing as well Uh, you know we're 3d we're 3d printing components for footwear we're knitting uh uppers for footwear. So there's lots of different manufacturing processes that that are changing year to year or every few years. And the the quality of the materials and the types of materials that are available are changing too. And so the the designers and the developers get to work with those changes. And uh you know, but we're we're doing the the science, applying physics and biomechanics to the athletes that are performing the movements.
0: I know that you work on the team that developed the Nike Shocks. Are you able to talk a little bit about what went into the idea of what it was you guys were going to try and make work?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I, I can talk about some of that, sure. And, and uh, Nike Shocks uh, ultimately became just a very, very innovative way to cushion the uh, impact forces developed during running, Uh, specifically the impact forces that are developed when runner's heels land on the ground. And a lot of that research uh, required us to study the interactions between cushioning and stability, and the sort of the, the compromises between the provision of cushioning characteristics and the provision of stability characteristics in footwear design. You can appreciate having these four independent columns underneath the shoe might be a little bit wobbly or uh, less stable than more conventional shoe design. And ultimately, I think we came up with a design that uh, provided enhanced ways to cushion forces certain kinds of forces in in a unique way without compromising the stability
0: of the runner. Who starts the, who starts the idea that we want to put some shock absorbers into a shoe? Like it didn't, it didn't really start that way, but it evolved.
1: It evolved that way. It's, it's, this goes back a long time ago. This goes back to the early Mm -hmm. eighties when we started working on it. And I'm not so sure uh, in today's marketplace, that we would have the luxury to have so much time to to study but it really started out as a research project kind of a, a and we were looking at the compromises or the interactions between stability and cushioning and trying lots of different things like initially we were looking at fiberglass and um I mean building sort of leaf, leaf springs out of fiberglass and putting them in in footwear, and then that it quick, quickly evolved into carbon fiber, a little bit more sophisticated, uh, and uh, we had a lot of failures along the way, and we keep addressing these failures, and it just eventually evolved into back into foam, but columns of foam. So it was a long, it was a, it was a long iterative process of. of, of failures and and problem solving and then you finally we, we 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 came upon something it wasn't really stumbling upon it because there was it was a very systematic long process but we came across something that was innovative and uh, we wanted to see it through pr- pr- pursue it to the end so how it's many- still- you can still buy the, these shoes today and it's 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 uh, very very innovative
0: and uh and different and unique do you remember the feeling or do you remember when you saw the first pair of nike shocks finished and what that what that must have been like after all those years of development
1: uh well that was yeah, that was a long
0: uh, i did a
1: lot of running myself i uh <laughs> i did I did a lot of running in shoes with fiberglass springs and carbon fiber components in them. I probably ran more in those shoes than anybody else ever has. <laughs> uh, and uh, which meant I had a I had experienced a lot of the positive feelings that can be associated with that kind of technology. Uh, of course, I also experienced how they they would fail and and, and they they didn't work. But by the time uh, Shocks was out, uh, you know, I, I guess I'd had so much experience with it that maybe I didn't feel the same kind of elation that I did for other products that I worked on that I saw come to fruition.
0: How many years was it from the time that, you, you know, the process started? Till...
1: It was 17 years from the time we very first started on, on asking the question and doing some research and then introducing it in the marketplace. It's unfair, though, to say that we were working on that the entire 17 years. There was a, a, a big chunk, The most of those 17 years was, was uh, taken up by Nike's uh, emphasis on air cushioning and shoes. So again, when we started working on this project, uh, the provision of airbags and shoes was kind of in its infancy and nike made a commitment to really maximize that uh that cushioning platform and put a lot of effort into it and, and so uh that encompassed nike's entire product line for years and years and years and then it was only when uh, uh nike's patented protection on on a lot of that air cushioning was approaching expiration that we we started looking for the next new innovation in cushioning and this is something that we had been working on that was kind of a, available several years ago so then we picked it up again and uh
0: finished it so what years what years were you working at nike i was there from 84 through 2014. nice and what was your background before you before you came there
1: i uh, had an engineering background and uh graduate work a master's degree and a phd degree in sport biomechanics
0: where were you doing that?
1: Uh, I did my PhD at Penn State, which was uh, one of the top biomechanics schools in the world at that time in the 70s and 80s. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did my master's in Halifax at Dalhousie. And I'm from Winnipeg. So my
0: engineering degree was at the University of Manitoba. Okay. So what got you interested in going into this field?
1: Uh, well, I was like a, like a, a lot of high school and junior high school kids. I was really interested in sport. Uh, I had a lot of fun. I was never really excelled uh, at sport that much. Probably running was my was my best sport, and I did a lot of running. But I I played a lot of sport. But mostly, I just really enjoyed playing sport. Mm-hmm. And uh, for some reason, as a kid, I wanted to have a career <laughs> in in sport. And I knew it wasn't going to be as a professional athlete. Uh, at the same time, I was I was you know, very good at mathematics and physics and things like that. And so I I pursued an engineering degree. Uh, And uh, when I finished my four years of engineering, I kind of knew that my degree was in electrical engineering. And I didn't didn't really want to be an electronics engineer or a power transmission engineer or a control engineer. Uh, I thought there must be a way that I can combine my engineering with sport. Mm-hmm. And I started pursuing biomedical engineering. Uh but uh I it was only then that I that I came to discover that there was a field called biomechanics. It was pretty new. You know, this is this is in the early 70s, is really pretty new, but it existed, biomechanics a sport. Mm-hmm. And so I uh was able to pursue a
0: master's degree and then a PhD degree in that area. So I was I was really lucky. And how were you how were you able to connect yourself with Nike?
1: uh again i I guess i was pretty lucky uh my advisor at, at penn state was had written a book on the science of the running shoe and he was doing research for uh different running shoe companies nike was not one of them but uh he was well known to nike and nike had an opening and sort of came to to penn state and said we have we have an opening do you have anybody and and I was close to graduation, and and so I interviewed for the job. So it was, it was just a matter of timing, timing, and and uh, the fact that I was at Penn State, uh, I think, helped a lot. Okay, oh, I have, I have a. It was a perfect job. It was a perfect yeah. job for me, and, and uh, you know, I did it for thirty-one years, almost thirty-one years, and uh, I didn't want to do anything else. It's, it was uh, the job I wanted, the job I trained for, and the job I liked once I had it. So it was, it was awesome. It's just a lucky career for me.
0: This might be, this might sound silly, but I think that you've answered a very important question during this interview. No more will anyone ask, is it Nike or Nike?
1: Yeah, I, I find Canadians, uh, I find a lot of Canadians that pronounce the company's name Nike. The founder of the company uh, tells a story where, uh, you know, the, I think one of the initial logos for the company was the, the word Nike all in lowercase, and it was written in script. And uh, uh it was at, at a quick glance it could be confused for the name Mike. And so he changed he 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 changed it to uh, uh, block letters rather than the lowercase written script to to prevent it being confused by the word Mike. And that's perhaps why a lot of Canadians pronounce the the name Nike rather than Nike. It's named after the Greek goddess of victory, Nike.
0: So now in your retirement, are you loyal to the brand still? Oh, yes. Yeah. So I'm still playing with Nike golf clubs, even though they're...
1: Nike's been out of the business since 2016. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the clubs I'm playing with now, I got when I retired, so they're eight years old. And of course, I still wear... Oh, you know, Nike shoes and Nike apparel. I'm, I'm very loyal to the brand. I think, And I think every long-term employer, I have a lot of friends who are retired, long-time Nike employees. Uh, they're not all still playing with Nike golf clubs like I am, but they're all still loyal to the brand.
0: I hope that you enjoyed this episode of The Creationist. If you haven't already, please check out some of our past episodes. You can also follow The Creationist Podcast on Instagram and Facebook to find out when new episodes are released. Also, we'd love for you to rate and review the pod on Apple or Spotify. Thanks for listening. The Creationist is mastered in post-production by Paul Ferrin. I'm Steve Waxman, and I created this podcast. <laughs>